Well, good afternoon again, and it's good to be back. The first couple of Sundays, you all kind of look like strangers to me, but I think four Sundays is just enough time. You're all friendly, familiar faces, so it's good to be here, and I'm sorry that this is my last Sunday here. As we come under God's word together, let me just offer up a word of prayer. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word to us. And we ask this day, as we consider the words of Psalm 34 together, that we would indeed taste and see that you are good. And so I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you our Lord, our Rock, and our Redeemer, in whom we take refuge. We ask this in the precious and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Well, today we look at Psalm 34, and there's that line in the psalm, Taste and see that the Lord is good. I think this is one of the more famous, well-known verses of the psalms. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And I have on my notes before me here, that's the title of the sermon. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And this is a psalm, Psalm 34, that was written at a particular moment in history, a particular moment in the life of David. We're told that in that superscription up at the top there. It was when he changed his behavior before Abimelech and went away. And it's important that we recognize that, the historical context of the psalm. And it's very helpful to uh, recognize the significance of what David is saying in that moment, at that particular time. And I've noted the last few weeks that the psalms are many things to us. They are a song book. They're a prayer book. They teach us how to pray. They teach us how to sing. I've also emphasized the fact that in many ways, the psalms are Torah, this Hebrew word that means instruction. The Psalms instruct us, they guide us, they teach us. And there's even a a literary relationship between the books of Moses, five books, and the Psalms, five books. Five books of Moses, five books of the Psalms. And that reminds us that our worship is always tied up with the way we live our lives. And there's an integrity to our, our worship, especially when we sing and pray and how we're living our lives. And obedience is necessary to write worship. And there's a close relationship between God's law and the Psalms. And the Psalm that we have before us today is a Psalm of Torah. It does give us instruction. David even says, come to me, children, I will teach you. Teach you the fear of the Lord. So we do have instruction in this Psalm. But this is a Psalm too. All the Psalms are deeply theological. They tell us, uh, they celebrate God, his character, his works of creation and redemption. And we see that In this psalm, it's a celebration of God's faithfulness, of his deliverance, of his provision, his providence. And this this psalm in particular is mostly testimony. It's fitting, Josh, that we heard your testimony today, because this is a psalm of testimony. David is giving his testimony, and he's calling on those who hear his testimony to trust in God. It's a psalm of trust, trust and confidence in God. But it's also Torah. It's also teaching. We have a bit of teaching in the midst of testimony. And the two main exhortations that we have in the psalm, we see them there in verses 8 and 9. That's where I want to focus today. Verses 8 and 9. In verse 8 we read, O taste and see that the Lord is good. 
Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And then the very next verse, O fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. And these two exhortations anchor the whole psalm. So I want to consider those two exhortations. But I think it's important that we spend a bit of time considering the historical context. And it's significant that we're told this, was, this is a psalm of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech and went away. That's the, the superscription right at the top of the psalm. And it tells us what was going on. It gives us the historical occasion when David wrote this psalm. And I think it's helpful if we just turn in our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 20, 21, chapter 21, and we have the account there of David's, first of all, being captured into the hands of Abimelech, and then his escape. So 1 Samuel 21, I'll read from verses 10 on to chapter 22, verse 2. So beginning in... 1 Samuel 21, verse 10, we read this. And David rose and fled that day from Saul. Notice he's, he's fleeing Saul. He's being pursued and persecuted by Saul. And went to Achish, the king of Gath. Gath is in the region of Philistia. He's a Philistine king. We're told in Psalm 34, uh, he's called Abimelech there. But this is, this is Achish. Achish was his name. Abimelech was more of a title. This was a generic term for Philistine kings. They were often called Abimelech. And we know that uh, Abraham had an encounter with Abimelech. Isaac had an encounter with Abimelech. We read that in the book of Genesis. This is just the generic name for king in Philistia. So just a Caesar for the Romans. Uh, so Pharaoh for the Egyptians. So Abimelech. It's actually two words in Hebrew. Abba, Melech. It means the fatherly king. The father king. So this is Achesh. This is Abimelech, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achesh said to him, is, this, is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achesh, the king of Gaul. Notice this. David's afraid. He's afraid. They recognize who he is. It's also helpful to remember that uh, Goliath was a Philistine. And that famous battle between the armies of Israel and the armies of uh, the Philistines, and that battle between David and Goliath. So they know who David is. And David realizes that he's been spotted. So he takes these words to heart, and he's much afraid, it says. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands, and made marks on the doors of the gates, and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achesh said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Apparently there's lots of madmen in Philistia. Shall this fellow come into my house? David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. This is the context for the penning of this psalm. He's in the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul. Notice the kinds of men that come to David. Everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. 
and he became captain over them, and they were with him about 400 men. This is the context for the writing of Psalm 34, when he changed his behavior and went away. And David was likely in the cave, and by candlelight, he wrote this psalm. And notice who's around him. These are men in distress, men who are in debt, men who are bitter in soul. And we can imagine this gathering around David. He's just in a a corner of this cave, penned this psalm. And here are these 400 men gathered around him, hiding with him in the cave. And we can imagine the scene there. Uh, It's probably very damp. It's probably very cold. If if you've ever been in the cave, you know that smell of uh, wet stone. There's that smell. That probably would have been a good smell compared to the smell of all these men who are in distress and debt and fleed. They're all gathered in one place, and they're probably murmuring one to another and rubbing their hands to stay warm. And then the word goes around the company of these men in the cave, David needs to address us. And there's a hush, and everybody gathers around. And then David reads to them this psalm. He preaches to the men in the cave. And he says to them this. He begins with a call to worship. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt his name together. It's called corporate worship and praise. And then David gives his testimony. This is a personal testimony. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant And their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. He's thinking back to his very recent experience of deliverance from the hands of Achish. Then he tells the man huddled in this cave, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger. We read in the book of Judges that when Samson was in this region of Gath, he fought lions there, and there was probably lions in the valley below, and they could hear them growling there. David says, the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children. This is how he addresses all of these men. They're warriors. He's their captain. He says, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And here's his little lesson on the fear of the Lord. First, he asks them a question What man is there? What man is there among you? What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil. And your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Remember, these men are in distress. 
They're in debt. They're bitter in soul. David says to them, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is what David said to his men in the cave. Men in distress, men in debt, men bitter in soul. The sound of lions outside, maybe even the rattling of the swords of the Philistines or Saul and his armies. And David gives this psalm in their presence. And I want to call our attention to the psalm. And especially these two words. We can imagine David saying this to his men, but this psalm has been read. It's been prayed by every generation of Christians ever since that first day. We've heard it twice today. And the heart of the psalm is these two exhortations. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And, oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. David says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And he says, fear the Lord. We have these two exhortations. And there's a very close relationship between these two exhortations. On the one hand, taste and see that the Lord is good. On the other hand, fear the Lord. And we need to consider this, this relationship between the two things. And actually, the way that David has composed his psalm shows us the relationship between the two. He begins with a testimony to the goodness of God. Then there's the exhortation, taste and see that the Lord is good. Then you have instruction on the fear of the Lord. And then you have more testimony about the goodness of God. So you have testimony, then teaching, then testimony. So verses 4 to 10, David gives his testimony to the goodness of God. Then in verses 11 to 14, there's his instruction on the fear of the Lord. And then in verse 15, he picks up again his testimony to the goodness of God. And that goes right through to the end of the psalm. And I think this says something about the relationship between tasting and seeing that the Lord is good on the one hand and fearing the Lord on the other. I think if, if you are a person who fears the Lord, then you, it, it means that you've tasted and seen that he's good. Those who taste and see that the Lord is good are those who fear the Lord. And in this sense, the, the goodness of God, we can think of the grace of God, is the seed of the fear of the Lord. On the other hand, David is instructing his men, and he instructs us to fear the Lord, because the goodness of the Lord and tasting and seeing the goodness of the Lord is also the fruit of fearing the Lord. So in one sense, tasting and seeing God's goodness produces fear. On the other hand, fearing the Lord produces the tasting and the seeing of the goodness. Do you see the relationship there? I think that's why he's bracketed that instruction on the fear of the Lord with the goodness. If you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, you will fear the Lord. If you're at a point in your life where you're not tasting and seeing the goodness, he says to his men, I need to instruct you in the fear of the Lord. If you learn the fear of the Lord, then you will again taste and see that he's good. And so I want to follow that pattern in the psalm. First, testimony to the goodness of God, then instruction on the fear of the Lord, and then again, testimony to the goodness of God. And in that first part of the psalm, starting in verse 4, David gives his personal testimony. It's a very personal account that he gives here. 
He says in verse 4, I sought the Lord. He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. And then in verse 6, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. Notice how simple these two verses are. These are not complicated sentences. I sought the Lord. He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. I cried out. He heard me and saved me from all my troubles. A very simple statement about prayer, about how God answers prayer, is faithfulness to his people. I sought him. I cried. He answered me. He heard me. He delivered me from my troubles. He delivered me from all my fears. And then he can give these general statements based on his personal experience. Verse 5, he says, Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. You can imagine these bedraggled men and dirty faces in the darkness of the cave. He says, Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. And then he reminds them, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. And in verses 9 and 10, those who fear the Lord and seek him lack no good thing. And the theme in these verses is deliverance and provision. God will deliver us. He delivers us. He delivered me. God will provide for us. He provides for us. He provided for me. So deliverance and provision. And notice how both of these things, deliverance and provision, are connected to the fear of the Lord. Verse 7, God delivers those who fear him. Verse 9, God provides for those who fear him. So now David will teach them the fear of the Lord. Come to me, children, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And he's saying to them, I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And if you are going to taste and see that the Lord is good, you need to fear the Lord. So he gives them instruction on the fear of the Lord. Now, fear in general is a very common theme in Scripture. I I don't want to say every book of the Bible, but it comes up again and again. Fear. Just generally fear. And we have this refrain, refrain throughout Scripture, fear not. God again and again says to his people, fear not. The gospel story begins with Jesus' birth and the announcement of the angels, fear not. It concludes with the angels again saying to the disciples at the tomb and then at his ascension, fear not. Fear not. And all through Scripture we get it. This instruction, fear not. Isaiah 41, verse 10. Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Last week we considered briefly the experience of Peter when he jumped out of the boat and ran to Jesus. And you remember when the disciples were in the boat before Jesus appeared, There's the storm raging around them, and they see what they think is a ghost, but then Jesus speaks, and he says, Take heart. Fear not. It's me. It is I. Jesus' word to his disciples again and again, Take heart. Fear not. We have David himself in Psalm 27. Psalm 27, verse 1, David says this, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And David's asking these questions. What is there to be afraid of if we take our refuge in God? And I think maybe I mentioned this quote from Oswald Chambers. It also appears in a Lutheran hymn. Those who fear God fear nothing else. Those who don't fear God fear everything else. 
And he's, David is saying to his men, don't fear. There's lots to be afraid of right now. Fear God. Don't fear all of these other things. And there is a sense, even though we don't have the specific instruction in this psalm, it doesn't, David doesn't say explicitly, fear not. But the whole psalm is an exhortation to us, fear not. The whole psalm is saying to us, fear not. God watches over you. God hears you. He's near the brokenhearted. His eyes are turned towards you. His ears are turned towards you. He will deliver you. He will provide for you. Fear him. Don't fear all these other things. Fear him. And this is another theme of scripture. And we've considered it briefly even in the last few weeks, looking at the Psalms, the fear of the Lord. Now, when we read there the fear of the Lord, it doesn't primarily mean be afraid of the Lord, be scared of the Lord. It doesn't primarily mean that, although there is an element of trembling, of terror in the fear of the Lord. That is an aspect of the fear of the Lord, a trembling, a a terror. Remember the experience of the Israelites being brought out of slavery in Egypt through the Red Sea, and there they are at the base of Mount Sinai. There's thunder, there's lightning, there's an earthquake, there's fire, and the people were terrified by God's presence. And there is an aspect of terror and trembling. And we don't translate this word in English simply as reverence or respect when we, when we come across it. It's always fear. And there is an aspect of terror and trembling. And actually, there's especially a teaching on this terror and trembling for the, for the wicked. And notice that the wicked are addressed in this psalm. And this is the experience even of Adam and Eve when they broke God's law, when they disobeyed God. It says in Genesis chapter 3, they were afraid and they hid themselves. And this is always the response of sinful humanity towards God. There is this terror and this trembling and the desire to hide from God. Now notice those who are characterized by the, by the fear of the Lord, the saints, the righteous, they don't try to hide from God. They actually seek God. They hide in God. God is their refuge. They don't need refuge from God. They take refuge in God. Even so, David does say to the wicked, and this is part of his teaching on the fear of the Lord, he says in verse 16, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. And he says again in verse 21, affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. And even those of us who take our refuge in Christ, who take our refuge in God, there is still that aspect of terror and trembling. And in our disobedience, in in our sin, God deals with us, he disciplines us in love. But even Hebrews says it's a dreadful thing to be in the hands of the living God. So in the fear of the Lord, there is that aspect of terror and trembling. However, for those People of God, for the saints, for the righteous addressed in this psalm, it's not simply naked terror, as it is for the wicked. For the wicked, they only have naked terror. But for the righteous, there's more to it than that. And as I mentioned, that's why we seek God. That's why we take refuge in him. We don't flee and we don't try to hide from him. And David wants to say something about the fear of the Lord, and he wants to instruct his men about it. And this isn't a, you know, a dissertation on the fear of the Lord that he gives. It's only three verses. But I think it's actually quite interesting what he has to say about the fear of the Lord. It wouldn't, it's not what we expect. If you look at verses 12, 13, 14, this is David's teaching on the fear of the Lord. 
And it's not really, I think, what we would anticipate following verse 11, where he says, I'm about to teach you. And we see three things there. First, in verse 12, the person who fears the Lord is a person who desires many days, long life, that he may see good. Those who fear the Lord desire long days in order to see good. Secondly, in verse 12, we see that the fear of the Lord affects our speech, the way we talk. And the way we talk demonstrates whether or not we fear the Lord. And then finally, in verse 14, the fear of the Lord is characterized by a repentance, turning away. But there's a positive aspect to that, doing good, seeking peace and pursuing it. That's what the fear of the Lord is. So I want to consider David's, what David teaches us, what God's word teaches us about the fear of the Lord. And remember that these men that are gathered around David are in distress, they're in debt, they're bitter in soul. And David asks the question, what man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Now chances are for many of these men, the outlook was bleak. They thought there's really no hope for us here. I mean, they're thinking about their distress. They're thinking about their debts. They've got bitterness in soul. They're hiding out in a cave. There's the Philistines, which are still threatening. There's Saul and his armies pursuing David. And now they've clearly shown their allegiance to David, who's an enemy of the state. And they probably had a very bleak outlook on things. And David says to them, which one of you desires long days that you may see good? What are you expecting in the days to come? Which one of you, how many of you, uh, how many among you expect to see good who want long days? And he's saying to them, don't focus on the cave. Don't focus on your debts, on your distress. Don't focus on the bitterness that you're harboring. Notice how the psalm starts out. Magnify the Lord. Look up. Look out. Look out the cave. Who expects long days to see good? And notice David is saying, I think he's saying, I'm such a man. I expect long days. I expect to see good. And he's saying to them, when your eyes are fixed on God, when you take refuge in him, when you trust in him, when you fear him, you will want long days because you will expect to see good. This means those that fear the Lord are not pessimistic. Now, it doesn't mean we're not realistic. David isn't saying, you know, let's just pretend that we're not in a cave and everything's fine, hunky-dory. Not at all. He's not saying that. He's not downplaying their present circumstances, but he's saying our outlook on life is not defined by our present circumstances. We long for long days. We want many days because we want to see good, and we expect to see good. And this psalm is talking about God's deliverance, his providence. David expects to see good. He says to his men, you should expect to see good. This means the fear of the Lord produces hope. People that fear the Lord are hopeful. They're filled with hope. They're not pessimistic. doesn't mean they're not realistic, but they put their hope in the God who is a God of deliverance, a God of provision. Which one of you desires life and loves many days that you may see good? It's a question that this psalm asks us. It asks the church in Canada, is our expectation that everything's just going to keep getting worse and worse and it's hopeless? I hope not. God's word to the church in Canada today is desire long days. Expect to see good. And in some ways, yes, we're in distress. 
I don't know uh, where each one of you is at, whether there's a debt, spiritual or actual, or whether you have bitterness in soul. But in many ways, the church in Canada, I think, is looks around, and there's a temptation to give in to pessimism. But David says those who fear the Lord want long days because they expect to see good. That's the first aspect of the fear of the, fear of the Lord in verse 12. Then we have verse 13. The fear of the Lord is closely related to our speech, how we talk. The way that we speak about others, the way that we speak, says something about the fear of the Lord. David says, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. If you want to practice the fear of the Lord, if you fear the Lord, you will keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Now, keeping your tongue from evil, this is probably a reference to slander. Slandering another person. There's a Greek word in the New Testament for slander. It's diabolos, devil. The devil is a slanderer. That's what he does. And when you slander, you are a devil. That's devilish behavior. By definition, slander is diabolos. David is saying, keep your tongue from the devil, from evil. And he also says, keep your your lips from speaking deceit. And Jesus says to the, the, the Jews and his disciples, he's teaching in John chapter 8, he says, you are the children of your father, the devil. He was a liar and a murderer from birth. He's the father of lies. And when we lie, when we deceive, we are behaving not as children of our heavenly father, but children of the devil. So David says, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Now again, he is addressing men who are in distress. They're in debt. There's bitterness of soul, which means they are likely to be tempted to speak evil and to lie. And I think there's always a temptation when we are in situations where we're in distress, we're in debt, there's a temptation to deceive, to slander. Maybe this is a way out. You can think of the, uh, the owner of a business and things aren't looking good. Maybe if I just fudge the books and I'll just get through this year. And there's always a temptation. Maybe this is the way out. Just a few lies and I can just kind of navigate around this problem and I'll be clear. So there's always a temptation. When we're in distress, when we're in debt, bitterness of soul, when, you're, when you've got harboring bitterness for another person, you want to slander that person. So he's addressing men for whom this is a particular issue, I'm sure. There's a temptation to speak evil, to deceive, and they are likely afraid. And when you're afraid, you'll do all kinds of things to rationalize sin. And chances are you have no problem speaking evil of your neighbor, provided I, don't, uh, provided I get, get out of this. I'm scared for my life. Who cares about this guy? I can say this and I'll be free. So David is, uh, he knows exactly what these men are facing, what they're dealing with, and he says to them, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. It's very interesting that Peter, in his first letter, twice refers to Psalm 34. He quotes Psalm 34 twice. In the first instance, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 3, Peter writes this to the church. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. This is precisely verse 13. Like newborn infants, notice that David addresses his men as children. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, 
that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. If you fear the Lord, you'll put away all malice, all deceit, all envy, all slander. You will not, your lips won't speak deceit. But notice what it says in verse 14. This is a more general statement. It's not specifically addressing one thing. But David says in verse 14, Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. It's a call to repentance. He's calling his men to repentance. He says, turn away from evil. And we know this much about repentance. It means turning away. Turning away from sin. Repenting of sin. Renouncing evil. But scripture, whenever it addresses repentance, there's always a positive aspect to it. Repentance isn't just turning away from something. It's turning towards something. And notice that's the emphasis in this verse. Yes, turn away from evil. However, do good. Seek peace. Pursue it. The life of repentance is a life in which not only are we turning away from sin and evil, but actively doing good. Seeking peace. If you can't find peace, pursue it. If you see it in the distance, run after it. Do good, seek peace, pursue it. This has a bearing on what he's just said about our speech. If we turn away from evil and do good, that means we don't simply just remain silent. I'm not going to slander someone. I'm not going to lie. That's the negative aspect of it, but there's a positive aspect to this. That means it's not only that you refrain from lying or speaking evil, but you are actively encouraging, blessing. Peter will quote these very verses in 1 Peter chapter 3, and he'll say, when you're reviled, bless. When people slander you, don't just not slander them back. Bless them back. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 4 verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear it. So, as it relates to our speech, doing good, seeking peace, pursuing it, this means speaking words that are edifying. Speaking words that are a source of grace to those who hear you speak. This is what the repentant person looks like. Even if you're bitter against a person. Actually, this is part of the, I think, the teaching of the psalm. If you're bitter towards a person... Don't just try not to slander them. Actually, actively bless them. Encourage them. Pray for them. And I think the bitterness will start to resolve. It's the way to root out the bitterness. Bless them. Don't slander them, but actively bless them. And it says here, seek peace. Chase after it. Pursue it. And the word here in Hebrew, it's, I think it's a word probably most of you have heard before, is shalom. Shalom. This is not an empty term. Sometimes we think of peace simply as it's the absence of conflict. Or it's kind of a state of tranquility. You think of the house once the kids have gone to bed, peace and quiet. There's an absence of noise and hustle and bustle. But shalom isn't just an empty term. It's actually a full term. There's a fullness to the peace that the Bible talks about. It's a heavy term. And it's variously translated in the Old Testament. Sometimes peace, but not always. It's often translated as wholeness, as wellness, as welfare. There's a famous passage in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29. This is where God writes a letter to those who have been taken into exile in Babylon. God writes them a letter there. And he says in verse 7, Jeremiah 29, 
He tells them, seek the welfare of the city. The word there is shalom. Seek peace. It's the same thing that David is exhorting his men. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, in its shalom, you will find your shalom. What is David saying to his men in the cave? Seek shalom. Pursue it. We're about to leave this cave. But we're not just going out there to cut down our enemies. That's not the goal here. We are going to leave this this cave on a quest, pursuing shalom. The shalom of Israel. Yes, the king of Israel right now is pursuing us. Yes, the king of Israel right now wants me dead. Even so, seek shalom. Pursue it. Pray for the city, God says to to the exiles. David says to his troops, as we go out from this place, we go out seeking shalom, pursuing it. And this is what David is saying to the church in Canada. We are called to, just as the exiles in Babylon were seeking the welfare of the city, seeking the shalom of the city, so God has called the church to seek shalom, seek the fullness, the welfare, the wellness of the city. This means there's a, there's a comprehensive aspect to the mission of the church. Yes, it's, it's informed by and it's grounded in the gospel. But the, 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 there's fruit to the preaching of the gospel, which should have an effect on society, should bring about shalom in society. And the church is called to pursue shalom. So this is David's mini lesson in just three verses on the fear of the Lord. He says, the fear of the Lord is hopeful. Men desire long days to see good. God has promised deliverance. He's promised to look after and care for us. He's near us even now. Look for good. Then he says, yes, you're in distress. Yes, you're in debt. Yes, you're harboring bitterness in your soul. Stop looking at that. Stop dwelling on that. Resist the temptation to speak evil. Resist the temptation to lie. We're not going to get out of this by cunning and deceit. No, speak words of blessing. Speak words that build up. You can imagine a collection of soldiers. I worked a blue-collar job many years, and the kind of corrupt talking that Paul talks about in Ephesians 4, you hear it all the time. And you can imagine that would be the case with these soldiers, these men. Temptation to corrupt talking. No, I want to hear you guys speaking words of blessing and building up to one another, and I want it to be a source of grace. That's what he's saying. And finally, there's, there's uh, repentance, which has the positive aspect to it. Do good. Pursue shalom. So this is David's teaching on the fear of the Lord. And then he returns to his testimony to God's goodness. You, the, there's the exhortation, taste and see that the Lord is good. It's picked up again. He's testified to the goodness of the Lord in his own life, especially in his recent experience He gives teaching on the fear of the Lord. Those who fear the Lord will, in a sense, acquire a taste. They will see good. They will see the goodness of the Lord. So he returns to that in the closing verses. And I want to just highlight two things that he says in verses 15 to 22. First, what he says about God's goodness, it's personal and intimate. God's care for us is personal and intimate. He's near the brokenhearted, 
His eyes and ears are toward us. And secondly, the psalm concludes with a very clear announcement of the gospel. Verse 22. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is the announcement of the gospel, and that's how the psalm ends. But first, let's consider God's care for us. David doesn't candy coat anything. As I said, he's not saying, you know, let's just pretend we're not in this cave right now and there aren't two armies after us. He doesn't candy coat anything. In fact, he says in verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Many are the afflictions. Even so, the verse continues, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Not some of them. Them all. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, yet the Lord delivers him out of them all. This is God's word and promise to us. Yes, we go through afflictions. Even so, God will deliver deliver us out of them all. And in the meantime, he says in verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. Even in the midst of our affliction, God is near and he saves us. David knew this in his famous Psalm 23. He said, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And then he says, Your rod and your staff comfort me. The rod and the staff, this is what the shepherd uses to discipline the sheep, especially the rod. Whack. Those things comfort me. Sometimes the affliction we're experiencing is actually God's discipline. And we take comfort in that, of all things. And even that word comfort, it comes from a Latin word. You know, if you eat uh, cheese, I really like cheese. The strong cheese, the strong cheddar, if you flip it over in the French side, it says fort, right? That means strong, strong cheese, the mature cheese. To comfort is to be strengthened. God's discipline and God either in his discipline or as he allows us to go through suffering and affliction, it's for our comfort. It strengthens us. It builds us up. It strengthens our faith. So David knows this. Yes, many are the afflictions of the righteous. God is near us in the midst of it, and he delivers us out of them all. And then he says, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. God watches over us. His eyes are toward us. A couple of weeks ago, I was at the beach with my immediate family, but also my mom and dad and my brothers and sisters and their kids. So all of the cousins were playing on the beach, and they're in the water. And of course, the aunts and uncles are vigilant. We're watching all the kids, make sure they're okay. We watch over the children. And if some of us want to go do something else, we make sure, okay, are you watching them? Are you watching them? We watch over our children. There was one point where... I was playing catch with my two nephews, and the younger one, who's only five years old, wanted to go back to his mom and dad, and they were down the beach a ways. So I, I just said, okay, stop, to the older, my older nephew. Let's just wait a second. And I watched my little nephew totter all the way out of the water along the beach until he got back to his mom and dad. I mean, we know to do that. When we have children in our care, we watch over them. Well, how much more does our Heavenly Father watch over us? He watches over us. His eyes are toward the righteous. And it says his ears are toward their cry. His ears are open to us. 
Any time now, probably in a couple of weeks, we'll have a new baby in the house, and once again the crying, and our ears will be open to the crying of our newborn. I remember when our oldest Samuel was first born, those first few nights, he's in the bassinet beside us, and every little twitch and noise, you're like, okay, what's happening, everything okay? And of course, after a while, after a few nights, I became a little bit desensitized to that. So I sleep through the night, and I wake up in the morning, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that was all right. Eh? Meanwhile, Megan's been up five times. I didn't realize it. But the, eye, the ears of the mom are, are listening for the cry of the newborn child. How much more are God's ears open to our cry? When we cry out to him, his ears are toward us. He's listening for us. He inclines his ear toward us. That's what the psalmist says again and again. He stoops down to listen. Is everything okay? He listens for our cry. And I think the description we have here of this intimate, personal care that we have, God is near the brokenhearted. He's watching over us. He hears our cries. This is a description of the the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We know that God is near us because he has sent his Spirit. Remember what Jesus says to his disciples, I will send you another comforter. There's that word again, comforter. He's been a comforter to them, but I'm going to go away. But I'll send you another comforter who will be with you always. And we know that our Heavenly Father watches over us, that his ears are open to our cries because he sent us the Spirit, which is, Paul says, the Spirit of adoption, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. We know God as Abba, Father, because he sent his Spirit, the Comforter, We know that he intercedes in our behalf. He's near the brokenhearted. Remember what Paul says in Romans 8 later on, that even as we groan in the midst of creation, which is groaning, so the Spirit is in us, groaning, interceding on our behalf. He's not just near the brokenhearted. God has poured out his Spirit, his love, into our very hearts, into those very broken hearts. It's a statement about the work of the Spirit. We know that God is with us. We know that he watches over us, that he hears us, because he sent his spirit. Then we have the conclusion of the psalm. This is where I want to conclude today. That final verse is a very clear statement of the gospel. Verse 22. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This psalm is a word of prophecy. The psalm is prophetic. The psalm points ahead to Christ. In one sense, David is the captain of these men. Christ is the captain of our salvation, the captain of the church. We can imagine Christ giving this sermon to us. David is just a type of the one who was to come, the Messiah, the anointed who was to come. We can imagine Christ giving us this psalm. And the reason that we can trust in this psalm is because it points ahead to the one who is the yes and the amen to all of the promises of God, as Paul says. It points ahead to Christ. And there's a very clear word of prophecy in verse 20. And those of you that know your Bibles well, I'm sure this jumped out at you. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Now, when David says this to his men, it's not a promise. I guarantee none of you are going to break a leg or an arm in battle. That's not what he's saying. Because this is a word of prophecy. And it's looking ahead. In John, in his gospel, in John chapter 19, his account of the passion, the account of the crucifixion, he cites this psalm. He cites that verse. 
And in the context, it was the Passover, and the Romans wanted to respect the Jewish festival and take down those who were crucified before sunset. So they went around and started breaking the legs of those hanging on the cross. And that's because when you were crucified, chances are you didn't die from a loss of blood. Most people died when they were crucified by suffocation. They were asphyxiated. That's because when you're hanging like that on the cross, and even the way it's always depicted, you're, you're slouched down, the arms are up, that, up like that, and you had to, on the one hand, pull up, and there's nails right through here, pull up on that, and push up with your legs just to inhale. Because the body was contorted in such, such a way that you couldn't breathe. You had to lift your body up to breathe. So the, the Roman soldiers, if someone had been up there long enough, they would just break the legs. Now the criminal, now the condemned can't lift up and breathe anymore. John tells us that when they got to Jesus, his le- he had already died. So they didn't break his legs. And then he quotes this verse, John 19, verse 36. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. So here we have the agreement between the testimony of the prophet David and the testimony of the apostle John. And that verse, verse 20, connects this to the cross of Christ. And we can't read Psalm 34 without reading it in the light of the cross of Christ. And the reason David can say, in concluding the psalm, the Lord redeems the life of his servants, is because there is a redeemer. And this psalm points ahead to that redeemer. And the reason he can say none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned is because that redeemer died in our place on the cross. And we've been singing about this, and Josh, you've been talking about it and leading us in songs. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And when we read here those who take refuge in him, we should read here those who take refuge in Christ. Those who take refuge in Christ will not be condemned. Christ was the true Passover Passover lamb on that Passover. You'll note this from Exodus, the description of what needs to happen. It's a lamb whose bones haven't been broken. He dies so that the wrath of God passes over. Not him. He drank the cup of God's wrath. It was poured out on him. Passes over us. And when we take refuge in him, the one who is condemned in our place, we find justification. We're clothed in his righteousness. And Jesus, yes, died a death of condemnation, but he was raised three days later. This is his vindication. This is evidence of the fact that he has taken our sin, our condemnation. He buried it and left it in that tomb. He rose again in glory, a radiant face. Verse 5. And the promise for us, those who take refuge in Christ, is that we too one day will be raised in glory. Our faces will be radiant. Those who look on him. When are we resurrected? On the last day when Christ returns. We will see him as he is. And our faces will be radiant. This is a psalm that looks forward to the resurrection. And that will be a body where our bones won't be broken. That will be a whole body. But even now, David says, taste and see that the Lord is good. 
Yes, Christ offers us life, not just life of many days, verse 12, but eternal life. But it's not just a life that is characterized by quantity. It's forever. It's eternal. But no, this is a qualitative statement. Eternal life is life which is a life in peace, a life of shalom. And even now, David says, we can taste and see that the Lord is good. And even now, those who seek him, who look to him, even now our faces will shine, will radiate. And those who God, whom God sends out into the world to pursue peace are those who have been already called, justified, glorified. Already we shine with the light of Christ. And already people should see the light of Christ shining in our faces. And in Christ, all the promises of God, in Christ, this psalm, everything that Psalm 34 says about God's faithfulness, his providence, his tender loving care, is yes and amen in Christ. And those who take refuge in him can pray this psalm with confidence as David did. And we can claim these promises. And we know that even in the midst of affliction, God is near the brokenhearted. He sees us. He hears us. We look to him because we know he's already looking at us. We cry out to him because we know his ears are turned toward us. And so even now we can say, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, the words of this psalm are a great gift to us. And so our hearts are filled with thanksgiving and joy because we know that the words of, these, of this psalm are not empty words. They are words that bring peace, that bring shalom, the source of our wholeness, our welfare, our well-being. Because they are words that point us to Christ. Those who take refuge in him will not be condemned. And Lord, even in life where we are in times of distress, when we're in debt, when we're harboring bitterness in soul, We ask that by your Holy Spirit, who day by day is carrying out the work of sanctification in our lives, we believe what Paul said, that you who began a good work in us will carry it through right until the day of Christ Jesus. You'll carry it through to completion. And so we ask that even now, if there is bitterness in our soul, that you would root it out that you would give us tongues that speak grace, that build up, that encourage, that you would protect us from speaking evil, from lying lips. We ask that as we look to you, you would give us such a vision of yourself that we would desire long days, not just eternal life, but long days in this life, that we may see good. Renew the hope of your church, we pray. And Lord, we ask that you would make us a people who not only refrain from evil, but do good. Who pursue shalom.
And we pray that we would see good, that we would see the fruits of this shalom, even in Canada, even in the GTA, even in Toronto. And yes, sometimes we feel like we're in a cave, and it's dark, and it's damp. And outside it looks bleak. But Lord, I ask that we would even now start to see the fruits of the gospel, the transforming work, the shalom. We do seek the welfare of the city. And I pray that we would see the fruits of that even now. And Lord, we pray with Psalm, or with David, the opening words of this psalm, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. We ask this in his name, the precious and powerful name of Jesus. Amen.